the studios in Omaha, Nebraska. Welcome to the Other Kind of Radio. Kind listener, welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome to another episode. Hope your week went well. Hope you got done what you wanted. And that all is peaceful. Heading into the weekend. Todd will be on in just a second. Um, we've got a few things to talk about. Uh, a few... Uh, housekeeping items, if you will. So let's get into those. Uh, You are listening to The Other Kind Radio, Talk Radio. I'm Jeff. I'm your host. Todd, again, is in makeup and will be here shortly. Talk Radio is just a pop culture culture podcast. Say that ten times fast. I'm sure you can, because I'm an idiot. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for joining us again. Realized that last week's episode went a wee bit long, so we're going to try and uh, keep it a little short. And you all have heard me say that about 8 billion times, and we honestly are going to try and keep it short this time. Uh, Because we realize everybody's busy, and it's I know if you look down and see, oh my lord, it's an hour and a half that can... uh, maybe discourage some kind listeners from listening. So we're going to try and shorten that up a little bit. But, uh, um, you know, just so that way uh, they're easier to digest, you know. Not quite the, the equipment. Uh, the Not quite the commitment. I'm going to slow down. I've had two sips of beer. And uh, uh, that's sad if I can't uh, handle that amount. So uh, that being said, let me try and tune in. Tune in, Todd. Tune in, Todd. Get Todd going here. I think that's him. Todd? Todd, are you there? <laughs> I'm sorry. I was eating some popcorn. Oh. <laughs> Excuse me. And Todd and is, and Todd is dead. I'm going to speed talk now because we're trying to be really fast. Isn't that what we're going to do? That's what we're going to do. We're talk really fast. How do you know what we can do tonight? We're going to do talk about it. Hold on. I'm going to take a drink for beer. Okay. That that hurt my head, so I'm going back to regular Todd mode. <clears throat> we're turning it from 45 back to 33. Yes. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? That's what we're going to do from now on. If it's an hour and a half episode, we're just going to triple it, and you're going to hit the fast forward. And if we're, yeah, if we're running short, I'll go. And you're listening to the <laughs> which is how I usually speak most of the time. That was actually surprisingly good. Hey, I'm, you know, it, some people boy. some people get talent like singing or making money or playing guitar, and I have. This is my talent. So, there you go. Nice. But, <laughs> yay me. <laughs> yeah, Woo, whoopee. Your parents are proud. Yes, right. I can just hear everybody. I can hear everybody touching their iPhones and hitting pause. Okay. Anyway, um, let's get things rolling. Uh, let's let's just get right into it. Todd's take on Todd. What you what are you going to take on this week? My take on is the wonderful eight part two-season documentary show on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us, which chronicles 
it sounds odd, but it is such a compelling show. It chronicles some of the great toy lines from Barbie to Star Wars, G.I. Joe to Hello Kitty, what they meant not only to the toy industry, but how they really hit what we talk about, pop culture and how they change things. It's a fascinating show done with enough bit of humor. You have uh, cultural icons looking at things. I actually watched the one about Hello Kitty today, and to my disgust, I'm sorry, but Paris Hilton was in there. But, you know, you'll get her, and then you'll get somebody that actually is in the industry and made the toy. It's just a fascinating little series that is one of those easy-to-digest uh, type series. I think you all have to check it out. I'll bite. Why was Paris Hilton on there? Um, she collects Hello Kitty. Oh, okay. So, she hey, that's one thing she has in common with you. <laughs> I get it. All seriousness, all seriousness. I am really having trouble talking right now. This is uh, this is going to be good. <clears throat> In all seriousness, though, um, why did you watch that one first? Because there's like GI Joe, there's Transformers. I'm just interested. Oh no, that was actually the last one I watched. Oh. I, in fact, it was the last one I put it off and put it off, and I finally today over lunch, I had nothing going on. I pulled up my computer and I thought, fine, I'll watch Hello Kitty, and. To its credit, it was fascinating. I bet it was. I watched recently watched the one on Transformers, mm-hmm. and I was getting I was getting up on you know, up there in age when all that was going on. I wasn't a big Transformer fan, um, but but very interesting. GI Joe, of course, was was huge for me. Uh, I didn't have the big GI Joe ones. I had the small ones with the Kung Fu grip, um, and I've watched some of these. And this is great for for Todd's take on. And I just remembered I didn't have your uh, intro uh, go there, so I apologize for the production. I thought that was for economy's sake, so that we cook through this. <laughs> We're so economical. I can't talk, and I can't. I can't raise the production value of the I, podcast. I waited on it when I didn't hear the projector going. I thought, okay, I'm just going to go. <laughs> See, this is this is it. And, and and for those for those of you listening, um, um, those that uh, have been with us for a while, just so you know, the other kind of radio is a one take show. We started and we go. Mistakes and all. There are no edits that um, are are made unless I really make a loud smacking noise or something that would uh, you know hurt the other kind or, or the kind listeners' ears. So it is, in a sense, while recorded a live event. I guess we should. I guess what we should do is we start should start saying uh, the other kind radio was recorded in front of a. Well, I guess it's not recorded in front of a live studio audience. You know, I think I need to take over the show today. I'm going to leave because you, the words today are not your strong suit. And usually that's not something I say. You're very good with what you do. And I promise I've only, I really have only had like two or three sips of beer. I, I do not normally drink while I'm recording. And I just was, Todd did it once when we recorded and I was, I was all jelly. So maybe it's, I'm tired, but we'll, we'll, we'll press on. But, you know, I, I got a beer today because Jess said he was going to have one. I said, I'm going to have one, too. Right. But you can talk. <laughs> and, and I'm now looking at my beer going, do I need to shoot it to catch up with you? I promise. I promise. I've been really good. It's crazy. All right. Well, okay. We'll finish it out. I'll do it right. Here's here's you speed reading. And, nice. that's, and that's Todd's take on uh, a great show, Netflix. Uh, the toys that made us, and in all seriousness, check it out. It is it is pretty cool. All right, um, we'll try and get this next one uh, down. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody! <laughs> Welcome to Jeff's Judgment. Um, today, Jeff's Judgment is going to be more of a mention of a company that um, you know in, in today's 
um, I guess just today's day, the, the way companies work and then maybe the customer's not always being first. A, about a year ago, I bought a wallet from um, a company called Distill Union, D-I-S-T-I-L-U-N-I-O-N.com. They sell um, slim wallets. Their, their bid is, hey, you've got too much in your wallet. You should carry less or be more efficient. And I bought one of their wallets. <clears throat> and the way the wallet's constructed, there was a, a piece that malfunctioned. And I just went ahead and it had been a, been a while. So then I just bought another wallet. And that one is malfunctioned. So I sent them an email and I was just like, hey, do you, know, do you have a way to fix it? You know, is there something I can do? And I got an email immediately back from Rebecca, nice Rebecca, and um, she is going to replace my wallet and was just really kind about everything. And um, I'd like to throw a shout out to distillunion.com, their wallets. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little embarrassed in saying that the wallet we're talking about was 60 bucks. Um, that is, <laughs> that is expensive. Um, but, you know, it was one I figured, you know, I'd buy and wouldn't have to worry about or, or mess with for, you know, a couple of years. So, um, just wanted to, to give them a, a tip of the cap and say, thank you as they have taken very good care of me and, and, uh, told them I would give them a shout out on the podcast today. And if you're in the market for a wallet, they also have sunglasses and some other things. Make sure you check out, uh, distillunion.com, D I S T I L U N I O N.com. And, uh, Tell them that the other kind radio sent you. Thanks, Rebecca. Yes, thanks, Rebecca. It was pretty cool. I mean, I, you know, usually you send that stuff off, and then my email alert went off. And I'm like, holy bajoli, they're right here. I, I love companies like that that actually take the time and care. It's awesome. Me too. Me too. Sorry, <laughs> I was taking a swig of beer. I, I, I don't know what to expect today. I say things, and you go completely <laughs> silent. So. I just don't know where this podcast is going right now. We're throwing we're throwing everything everything out the window right now. This is this is the whole new show. Um, <clears throat> all right, well let's get to the meat of the show because we did talk about trying to keep things a little shorter today. Um, for those of you who are uh, have been listening, Todd and I are going through the AFI 10th anniversary top 100 films of all time. I don't even know if that's the proper terminology, but. Well, it's not. Yeah, that's basically it. We're going over what's what is the quintessential list of the top films ever made and discussing it. Now, in the last podcast, I mislabeled it. We went from uh and realized quickly that we were uh, had bitten off a little more than we could chew. Um we started with 100 and had planned to go to 76, but by the time we had approached anywhere near that number, we realized how late we were going. <clears throat> so we stopped at 81. Of course, that did not stop me from titling the the podcast with the wrong title. So for those of you who are paying attention and notice that, congratulations. For those of you who don't care, then then come on in. The water's fine. Um, but we left with uh, number 81, Spartacus. And uh, today we are going to attempt to go through 80 through 71 the next 10 we'll see what the time is once we get there and if we're running short we'll uh we'll tag a few more if not we'll just uh, try to do it 10 at a time so let's go ahead and get the projector fired up and start out with the 80th movie which is a movie that was made in 1960 
<clears throat> entitled The Apartment. Todd, take it away. So this film is absolutely one of my favorites on the list. And it's one that, you know, I, I will battle with any, and I'm going to say guy, because so many guys that I know that know I'm a film fan, they'll, oh, yeah, I love Die Hard. And I'm like, okay, Die Hard's a good movie, but what about this? And they'll inevitably come, I don't care as long as my wife doesn't take me to a romantic comedy. There's no such thing as a good romantic comedy. You're wrong. There are great romantic comedies, and The Apartment is an absolute example of it. It's Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, and Fred McMurray, excuse me, directed by the great Billy Wilder. And if you don't know who Billy Wilder is, Billy Wilder is one of the absolute geniuses of the writer-director worlds. So not only did he do this and win the Academy Award for Best Picture, Best Director, and I believe Best Writer for this, he also made Some Like It Hot. He also made Sunset Boulevard. Sabrina, um, the seven year itch. I mean, this man is a guy that directed iconic film after iconic film. So, what is this film about? It's Jack Lemon as a person trying to work his way up in the corporate world, and the suits above him need somewhere to take their girlfriends so that he lends them his apartment. And by doing so, he meets one of the young women played by Shirley MacLaine. Oh boy. This film it is a romantic comedy and it is funny as all get out it's shot beautifully but it has a very dark side to it too especially for 1960 to have the dark side of that she's realizing what she is to fred mcmurray's character but it is often credited if you ever go watch the great romantic comedies including you know a great example is if you've ever seen uh, when harry met sally there's the the famous scene of billy crystal's character running at the end well Everybody points back to this film as why running is a staple of the romantic comedy genre, because at the end, Shirley MacLaine has to run to get to what she wants. And the look of glee and joy on her face is so iconic that everybody to this day in romantic comedies has to put it. And in fact, they do it in Jerry Maguire, too. He has to run at the end. You have to run to get to what you want. He created a bit of language in this movie. It's an outstanding romantic comedy. It's one that if you've not seen, please treat yourself. So two things come to mind real quick. I don't remember uh, when in Harry Met Sally when he had to run. He's out at the very end. She's at the New Year's Eve ball. He is not gone. They, They agreed to go as friends. He's walking the city streets, feeling lonely, eating ice cream, and he's remembering everything about her throws his ice cream down and runs as hard as he can to get there to stop her before midnight so he can kiss her. That is right. Okay. The other thing that uh, catches my attention is I am on uh, imdb.com, which I invite mm-hmm. uh, our kind listeners to follow along if they want to. Um, the poster for this movie <clears throat> has the title, has yep. the actors, and then written it says, movie-wise, there has never been anything like love-wise, laugh-wise, or the otherwise." So clever. So 19, when this came out, what did I say? 60. Yeah. (laughs) Somebody somebody making a lot of money came up with that idea, and that's good. Well, I do love looking at those old posters. It's the same that eventually when we get to um, Citizen Kane, I actually have that framed in my media room downstairs, and it really, all it says is, and it has a picture of him with two women in it, and it just says, it's terrific. And you're thinking, really, that's the best you can come up with to promote this film. There's no tagline. There's nothing. It's just, it's terrific. I wonder if that movie is going to be on this list. Would you say it was called what? Certain Hand Cane? What? 
Okay, so we, ladies and gentlemen, at this point, Jeff has officially <laughs> left the podcast. <laughs> All right. So, oh, and I have to say, I have not seen the apartment, but um, um, it it kind of reminds me of uh, what's the one with um, Robert Redford and Jane Fonda? Is it the uh, uh, when they? I think they play newlyweds or something called the Accidental really? Tourist or something. Well, the accidental tourist is very different, um, <laughs> but, and that would have been uh, Gina Davis and God uh, William Hurt. Okay, but there is a movie where Robert Redford and Jane Fonda. And it's set back they in that ton of films together. Yeah, and so I, I was never a big fan of them, but yes, the, I'm sure that I promise you, if you watch this, it's it's that's why again, and 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 to do a reset on this, if you if you weren't here for the first one, the AFI did not just choose. Oh, these are our most popular films. The, there's a real cultural reason for these films being on here. And the apartment is considered to be one of the great romantic comedies oh. of all time. Before this, you had the thirties and forties had screwball comedies and, and the romantic things like that. But this created almost a modern language of the people having to look past the struggles they had to find each other. Well said. Now I'll stop trying to relate to it. Um, I haven't seen it. Well, I'll check it out. Moving on to number 79. <clears throat> on the AFL, AFL, AFI 100 year list. And this one came out in 1969. It is the Wild Bunch. Take it away. So this is directed by the great Sam Peckinpah, an aging group of outlaws. Look for one last big score as the traditional American Western is disappearing. I'm sorry, the American West is disappearing around them. It's a, it's a film so iconic that you've now seen this very thing repeated. I can't tell you how many times. Um, the reason it's going to show up here is Peckinpah is known for his use of slow motion that became iconic to the point where everybody else had to copy it. Um, it's a, it's a great film. It's, it's not anything that's amongst my favorites, but it is a great film. I will say that it has Ben Johnson, who is in the last picture show. We've already talked about him for winning the Academy Award. So you're seeing some, some repetition already of the, the people that appear in this list and made differences. Would, um, <clears throat> the Unforgiven fall into that to that kind of remake. Yeah, and okay. in some ways, I mean, it, it's funny because I just took my dad, my nephew, to see Solo. I'd already seen it as we discussed, but you know, even that film is mm. nothing more than a remake of these kind of things, where it's a it's sim simply a train heist with laser guns instead of pistols. So they've been making this very film over and over and over and over and over. It's just that Peckinpah so iconically did it. There was a bit of gritty realism to it, but again, it was that use of slow mo that he's really, really known for. Well said, and and yet another film I haven't seen. So uh, I'm I'm three for three. Oh yeah, I've, it's I, I remember seeing it as a kid, and again, it just wasn't my thing at that time. I probably should go back and watch it again. Okay. All right, coming in seventy nine, The Wild Bunch, nineteen sixty nine. Moving on to number seventy eight. Number seventy eight came out in nineteen thirty six. So we're taking a jump back. And we're talking about a movie by the name of Modern Times. So this is Charlie Chaplin. Um, anything you get into Chaplin, there, there's usually an iconic moment that you've seen. The assembly line uh, shot of him working, you've, you've seen it. If you've watched anything about film retrospectives or anything like that, you've seen these moments. Um, it, it, there, I could describe the plot for you. Basically, it you know that you have to think again. This came out during the depression, so he's always up against the industrial system or something where he's the little hobo on the outside looking in. Um, if you've not treated yourself to Chaplin, and, and I beg people to get over the whole thing about it's it black and white, it's not color, or that it's silent. Um, and it's, I think actually in this one he speaks, if I'm not incorrect. 
but Chaplin is well worth your time. Uh, we're going to get to another one of his later on that I will tell you that uh, I'm not, I won't divulge which one it is, but he actually has a film that will just break your heart if you will actually give the time and watch it. He was he was a master. He understood that camera. He understood how to play to it. Uh, it's well worth the time. And um, also worth mentioning, jump back to the Wild Bunch real quick. I believe that's our first Western in the top 100. I'm looking back through here, and I'm not. I don't think I'm seeing any other Westerns. So that's worth noting, right? I absolutely think you're right. <clears throat> Coming in at 79, so the first Western, and then Charlie Chaplin, of course, uh, did so many things for film and comedy, and even the the movie that some like, that some don't. That um, uh, what's his? I just had his. Uh, uh, Downey Jr. was in uh, the supposedly oh, yeah, the Richard Attenborough biography. I yeah, I, that's to me that's a movie that I don't ever really seek out. But if I find it playing somewhere or already halfway through, I'll stop down and and watch it. Um, I you know it's it's funny for I don't I don't believe in guilty pleasures, but it is one of those that I don't think it's a perfect film, but I definitely enjoy watching it. That's a good movie too. Okay. All right. So seventy eight modern times, uh, Charlie Chaplin movie. Um, taking up the 78th spot. Now on to 77th um, in 1976. Now I'm a, I'm a little embarrassed, but I have not also, I have, this is another movie I have not seen. I am actually, this will make five for five, uh, but stopping in there is All the President's Men. So I'm going to implore you to go watch this movie. This movie tells the, the story of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, the reporters for the Washington Post, who basically uncovered all the details that that broke the Watergate scandal. Oh. They are the people that took that information and put it out there. Now, neither one of them is nearly as handsome as Robert Redford or Dustin Hoffman, but what this film does, it's Alan J. Pakula is the director. What it does is it takes newspaper reporting and makes it exciting. It is, I mean, you are on the edge of your seat as these guys are getting death threats and running around. And, and especially, I, in fact, I watched this maybe two, three weeks ago. So especially in these times we live in today, mm. you, you can think about all the garbage that's going on in the government and these people trying to find out the truth to get it out there. Uh, we, we, I don't want to get too political. I don't want to offend anyone. But we hear the different things about fake news and how people try to destroy the media. It is an essential part of America and this film, to me, completely shows you why you need these people out there doing this for you. Watch this film. You, you can then put it together. I, I've told people before, fine, you, you think you don't want to watch something on a newspaper? Watch Zodiac, which is a film of the same era, and it feels like it belongs with this, and you could just have a 70s night. They're both great films, both made the same way, thrillers, but I, All the President's Men is just one of those absolute gems of the 70s you can't miss. Very well said. Um, I, now, <clears throat> now that uh, you talk about it a little bit, and I'm looking at the IMDb page, I'm, I may have seen it, but it, it's definitely been um, long enough where I should I should reacquaint myself with it. So I, I don't think you'll be disappointed, but it is one that you you, you need to pay attention because it, it it it's a lot of talking. You know, this isn't a shoot 'em up. There is tension, but it is people giving you details, and if you'll give yourself to it. Man, it's a great movie. Fantastic. And and why do you think it, it came in at 77? Is it obviously it's we can't uh, I'm not thinking it's because of Dustin Hoffman and, and Robert Redford, but maybe the subject matter is what's kind of placing it where it's at. I think the subject matter plays something to it. But I think what really if I'm going to take a guess and I need to I had already flipped on to the next movie side so in front of me. But 
um, you're you're looking at a screenplay. William Goldman, I should have known, great uh, screenwriter. Who, I mean, this is the, this is the man that wrote Butch Casting the Sundance Kid, wrote the book that Princess Bride is based around, etc. I mean, great writer. It it is the perfect execution of a film that, like I said, is about two people talking to people. Okay. And somehow they make it riveting, and y- you are on the edge of your seat. Even though that's also a hard thing, it's the same as if you go look at Apollo thirteen. What a great piece of filmmaking that is, because if you look into the story, you know that they make it back. But even in that one, they somehow create the tension of, oh my god, are they going to make it? It's the same type thing with this one. We know what they're going to uncover, and we know what happens to Richard Nixon, but they somehow put it together to where we are tense and whenever it pays off, it pays off beautifully. I, I just think this is one of those where it's a perfect marriage and the, the uh, AFI sort of said, this is what filmmaking should be. Okay. Well, good. Okay. So uh, that's uh, at 77 <clears throat> from 1976. That's all the president's men. Now we move on to uh, a film that came out in 1994. I'm very familiar with it coming to the uh, number 76 spot. Forrest Gump. So we're looking at a film <clears throat> that I'm actually surprised ends up on this list because Ooh. there's so much revisionist history of not liking this movie now by the film snobs of the world. Um, it's directed by Robert Zemeckis, who has, you know, and arguably a, a fantastic director, has done tons of things from Back to the Future to this to... Um, I wish I had in front of me his most recent one about the guy that did the high wire over the World Trade Centers. Burton on a wire. Thank you. And that, I love that. I think great he's movie. just a great technician. I really love what he does. I think what people no, don't... it's I'm, Man on a Wire. Sorry. Man on a Wire. Um, Bird on a Wire would have been... Uh, Mel Gibson. Mel, Mel Gibson. Gibson. <laughs> oh. that, that's me pulling out my absolute... Why does he know that film knowledge? Right, exactly. Oh, look at those film geeks. Aren't they cute? Please continue. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think why people don't like this now is that it's a bit of a whitewashing of the original novel. The original novel had Forrest much more as a true racist, uh, a bumbling idiot, but a racist. Mm. Uh, they come along and they make this, you know, and, and it's like a great director would. A great director says, this is what the story is, but this is the story I want to tell. Now, that can either be I destroy the book or I make it this much better. I think you can't help but have this because this is such a, a, a absolute point in time where great filmmaking, acting, writing, as well as the technicality of this. So putting Forrest in with JFK, taking away Gary Sinise's legs. If you'll remember at this time, that would have been 94. We weren't used to computer graphics where they could take away someone's legs. Because I remember thinking, I know Gary Sinise. I saw him in My Man. I know he has his legs. How do they do that? Um, I think that's probably why it ends up on this list at that point. I'm 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 <clears throat> I'm surprised by your by your initial statements that you made there. Um but a lot of them ring true and I definitely can um see why uh you would say that. Uh for me this uh this movie is is one of the higher ones as far as storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um you know being that it was 1994 and I was not reading a lot of books um that um it 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 really spoke to me. There were some some really good scenes in it. There was uh, to me again. It was it was a journey, um, film wise. And 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 maybe maybe as a watcher, I need to um, make sure that I'm you know factually it's it's staying on course. But I really did enjoy it. I thought it was great. It is hugely 
referenced pop culture. I mean, you know, I play uh, Xbox and, you know, I play online with other people. And any time, you know, something bad is going on, inevitably you'll hear somebody yell, run, Forrest, run, you know. And there's Mama always said. So um, I think it it made a huge impression. There were a lot of the things, like you said, technically that were done um, that I think also helped it get... um, where it is you know it's all the way up here it's the head of platoon you know part of me doesn't really agree with that um but a very good movie and and for me has always been highly rated just because of the story that it told and it took you all the way and it was fun to believe that elvis stayed at the hotel and got his moves from you know young forrest gump um which i and please when i'm saying these things i i i I actually really like the film oh oh okay Mm. I, I'm saying it, that I'm surprised because the film snobs say this. Now, I, I needed to verify this. I, I'm going to tell you why I think there's such hatred for this film in the film snob world. And that comes from the Academy Awards, which, again, the Academy Awards are the biggest bunch of hooey in the whole world. But the year 1992, I'm going to name off Forrest Gump won Best Picture. In 1992? Right. Yes. Well, I'm going to name off. What it came out in 1994, though. Oh, 94. I'm sorry. I, I said it's right in front of me, and I said 92. Um, <laughs> that looks like beer's kicking on on somebody else now. Hey. So I'm going to name the first film. A couple of these films I'm going to name, you're going to go, oh. In fact, I'm going to name the O oh mo- moments first, but these are the films that beat to win Best Picture. Four Weddings and a Funeral. Mm. Quiz Show. Mm. Shawshank Redemption. Mm. Pulp Fiction. So I think immediately, in fact, I know Pulp Fiction is higher on this list than this, and it deservingly belongs there. Yeah. Or was, no, did it be, it may have been before this. No, 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 no. Pulp Fiction's all the way down there at 94. Oh, that's right. But see, it, Pulp Fiction to the film snob is art. Forrest Gump to the film snob is pulp. Gotcha. It's exactly what we say the other should be. Um, and so I think that's where they all get off on this. I think Forrest Gump's a lot of fun. I. I, you know, my daughter was just quoting it the other day. She loves it. It already speaks to her at 15. So you can't discount right. that it works. I, I'm just trying again because why is it on the list where it is? And I, I really think it is its technical ability from writing, directing, but also the execution of the technicality as well. One other little footnote with uh, <clears throat> Forrest Gump in 1994. Uh, that is also uh, the last movie for about 20 plus years that I saw at night. Really? It was a crowded uh, theater that evening. I think it was a Friday or Saturday night showing. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, loud and hard to focus. And then I just remember thinking, I am never going to a movie at night again. It's going to all be matinees for me for the rest of the days. I think... I've gone to maybe one, <clears throat> one or two uh, group kind of thing where the movie was at night, but I, I went ahead and dis- disengaged myself enough that it didn't bother me that there were people being loud or, you know, because, you know, it's a Friday or Saturday night thing. People are out kind of acting a little crazy. So just a little tidbit of information for you there. But coming in at 76, out in 1994, Forrest Gump, moving on. I have seen this movie. came out in 1967. It's a great movie. Coming in at 75, In the Heat of the Night. 
directed by Norman Jewison, and it's going to be the one that I'm going to say that I know I saw as a young man. I have not seen since. Um, I went through a period of I probably film snobbery where everybody was telling me you have to see these films, and I probably should have rewatched it, and I need to. Um, I've not done that. So it's it's the first film that I'm, I, I've seen, but I'm actually going to claim and say I haven't seen because I've not seen it with adult eyes. But Norman Jewison, a great director who I, I've loved many of his things. Uh, the, Tom, the original Thomas Crown Affair, Fiddler on the Roof, Jesus Christ Superstar, um, Agnes of God, Moonstruck. Uh, it, and he just, the man, uh, the hurricane with Denzel Washington, yeah. great yeah. director. Um, this is considered to be one of those landmark films because you're, you're taking a black man and putting him in a, in a position where he stands up and, and very famously uses the, the line, they call me Mr. Tibbs. Um, it, that, that is like a slap in the face to white America at that moment. And I think of any... There are other reasons. Quincy Jones wrote this, the jazz score for this that's very, very famous. I, there are so many things about this coming out in 67 that make it belong here. But this is, to me, this is on this list because of what it did in 1967 to wake up America and say that we can put black people in roles like this. Now, I've got a question for you regarding this. And, and everything you said, very, very well said. Um, but while you were talking, I was a little distracted because I think this movie was redone. With William Defoe and another actor, um, well, that would that would have been Mississippi Burning. But but that's not this. This is this is no, a different. Okay, but it, it definitely has moments of that, and I think that was Alan Parker directed that. I'm trying to. I just remember the them being sent down to the south to do investigation on some stuff. So I, that's why I asked. That was that was idiot film, Jeff. Uh, just wondering if if that's what yes. you know. That is Alan Parker, Willem <laughs> Dafoe, and Gene Hackman, uh, Francis McDormand. Okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But, but it's mo a little bit more about a couple of FBI agents going down to Mississippi to investigate civil rights activists disappearing. I couldn't remember that. Uh, I, I couldn't remember if William Dafoe was paired up with somebody who was African American or not. But yeah. Okay. Well, and to be fair, I also didn't say the whole slug line of the film. So in the heat of the night, an African-American police detective is asked to investigate a murder in a racially hostile southern town. So, yes, the themes are very similar, right. but we're, we're talking a much more granular level than the FBI coming in. Yeah, we, we should on the, on the remaining ones, we should make sure we go ahead and uh, and read yeah. that little synopsis. Because, you know what, we take it for granted that um, that people know um, what it's about. I agree with you. All right, 75 in the heat of the night coming out in 1967. I kind of feel like I'm doing uh, Casey Kasem's Countdown. Coming in at 74. Like <laughs> coming in at 74. 1991. Very, very memorable. Hello, Clarice. The Silence of the Lambs. The, this is one of the weird films that I can say is a date movie with my wife and I. My wife and I have two date movies, this and Jaws, meaning that <laughs> it's on TV we sit down and watch it together because for what we saw this together when we were dating, but let's go into it real quick. If you don't know what silence of the lambs is it's the intro, it's not the introduction of the Hannibal Lecter character. We had that in Michael Mann's Manhunter a few years before, but this was the first appearance with Anthony Hopkins winning the Academy Award come to win the Academy Award as Hannibal Lecter. The story is a young FBI cadet must receive help from an incarcerated and manipulative cannibal killer to help catch a serial killer, a man-man who skins his victims. 
It's directed by Jonathan Demme, starring Jodie Foster and uh, Anthony Hopkins. This film goes on to win what is considered the Big Five, and I'm going I'm to try to do this correctly, and I think it's only happened, I'm thinking, three times. The other times where it happened one night, um, one for the Cuckoo's Nest and Silent Slams, and the Big Five are Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, and Best Actress. So this won five Academy Awards for those five uh, top categories. It is a flawless execution of a horror film. What is amazing about this movie and what Jonathan Demme did so beautifully is that he understood that he needed to find a way since this is, it's somewhat reminiscent of the type thing that you're going to get with all the president's men where it's a bunch of people talking, but more than that, it's two people talking. And he said, how do I get it to where their conversations make you feel like you're uncomfortable? So what he did is he, he, he framed the majority of the shots when Clarice is talking to Lecter is what are called positive shots, meaning they are completely locked off directly to the person and that person is looking into the lens. So when we're watching it, Hannibal Lecter is looking in our eyes. Go back and watch this film and you will see how much the majority of this film is shot in that manner and why you feel so uncomfortable by the end of it is because Hannibal Lecter is analyzing you. This movie, um, it's funny, you you classify it as a horror film. Um, I I would have, I would have if, if asked, I would have uh, classified it as a thriller mystery. Um, there, there are some hor- horrific moments, and I, I get why. Um, but this movie uh, really set the stage and is something uh, to this day that uh, I enjoy watching. Um, it's interesting for you to talk about. I think you, you called it positive frame. The, one of the most, <clears throat> one of the most uh, terrifying moments in the film is when um, Clarice is in Jane Gum's house, has put two and two together and realized this is the person that is responsible, um, the person they've been searching for. Jane Gum, I think that's right, right? That's the character, right, Jane Gum? Um, uh, turns off the lights and has used night vision with his past victims. And, I mean, I'll never forget, there's always that cool sound um, yeah. That 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 the night vision makes, but again, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they, it it was one of the first times thinking back where you're scared for her, but you're looking through his eyes, and how how different was that? And and you may know some films that that it borrowed that from, or or was like, or based on. Well, it, it's a it, the entire film was a huge gamble. From that standpoint, from the standpoint of the producers bringing Demi in, Demi had done some some great things. Um, oh my God, the film with Melanie Griffith, something wild or something like that. He he'd done the um, the Talking Heads concert years before. Mm. He 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 was a very eclectic kind of director, and they brought him in. And when he made this choice of look, we need to, and even with what you're mentioning there, that moment at the end. We need to give a lot of POV shots, point of view shots. Yeah. I want it to be from the, the standpoint that, that sometimes the character doesn't know what's happening to them. And that even goes into what I was saying before about Clarice and, and Lecter is that they're constantly right. looking at each other and sizing each other up. And so when he then gives it to Buffalo Bill at the end, yeah, it, what it actually does, and, and the Clarice character is considered to be a great moment in feministic film history because even though she can't control the moment, 
she is completely in charge. And another, here's a great thing if you've ever, if you ever want to watch this film, Jonathan Demme wanted to say something about the way women are treated mm. in corporate America. Mm. So he would purposely go to the, the, the male actors and tell them to look down on Jodie Foster. Now, Jodie Foster is notoriously a very small woman, but he would say, look down on her. And by the way, I want you to size her up. I want you to look at her, her, her butt. I want you to look at her breast or whatever it would be. And he and he, he would tell Jodie, he would go and go, did, did it seem like he was looking at you? And so he would play this manipulative game. Hmm. And so there are scenes, there's a famous scene where she's walking through the airport and the guy walks past her and looks, looks at her as she walks by. And it's, it's the reduction of women everywhere we go. Yet she somehow transcends above it. And it, it, you can almost argue that that's what Lecter wants of her. And that's the perverse nature of it. He's this horrible, horrible person that somehow he's wanting to elevate her. He's wanting to bring her up above her small town roots. It, I call it horror, Jeff, because to me it's so psychologically horrible. Yeah. Uh, hor I'm sorry. That's horrible. It's a combination of horrible and wonderful. I, I, I get you. I, I wanted to word it, but it, it, psychologically it is, it's in their head. And I think what you mentioned with Buffalo Bill is terrifying. I think there's a shot and the last, if I'm saying this correctly, the last time she sees Lecter face to face, I think that's correct. When they're handing the drawings back and forth and his finger slips over her hand mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's a tight close up. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a whole audience go <gasps> just because of a finger. <laughs> but that, that to me is playing psych psychological horror games with you. So I do, I, I see why you call it a thriller, but right. I think there's so much horror elements in this and it, and it's all, this is a virtuoso moment of a film director. It, this film without Jonathan Demme is an entirely different movie, entirely yeah. different. Well, and, and, and uh, the other reason why I call it a thriller is because I'm, I'm a big scaredy cat when it comes to scary movies. And, uh, so if somebody said, Hey, have you seen silence of the lambs? It's a good thriller. I'd be like, Oh, I'm interested. But if they said, have you seen the horror film? I'd be like, rrr, rrr, rrr. but uh, <laughs> I knew as soon as you, you balked on that, I thought he doesn't want me calling it horror. Cause some <laughs> should be yeah, call me going, I'm watching silence. <laughs> Um, I agree with the placement here. Um, definitely, if not possibly a little bit higher, but as we go through, maybe we can, we can talk about why it's, it is the first movie to break the top 25. So, uh, that once again was Silence of the Lambs, uh, coming in at 74, uh, uh, originally released in 1991, which takes us to 73, another movie from 1969, um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So George Roy Hill directed William Goldman, who we just talked about having written for All the President's Men, wrote it. It is probably one of the great buddy films of all time, having Paul Newman and Robert Redford famously star as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, who are the leaders of a band of outlaws. And after a train robbery goes wrong, they find themselves on the run with a posse hard on their heels. Their solution, escape to Bolivia. Right, because that's just right around the corner. That's exactly. You know what? Anytime you and I are on the run, we're going to Bolivia. That's it from now on. <laughs> I mean, because it goes California, Nevada, Omaha, Bolivia. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So uh, I don't know how much more I can say besides great buddy film. Very funny. Very interesting. Um it, it truly is one of the great fun films of the seventies. You could, you could make a Butch Cassidy and Descendants film. That's much more tragic. I'm sure. But what they did with these two men, I, God, they're it's immense screen chemistry. And when you eventually see them, I, now I can't, I think the sting came after this. If you've never seen that, that's a great best picture winner 
with the two of them. They just had amazing chemistry on screen, but the movie also has a, a standout point of using BJ Thomas's raindrops keep falling on my head mm. in a moment where it sounds gleeful and fun, but truly the character shouldn't feel that way. Um, so it's a great juxtaposition of where they should be. And it, it's just one of those very iconic things because it, it, they tapped into something a little different and they created everybody else in the world tried to emulate what they had here and no one ever could. I am not seeing the sting anywhere on the top 100 of the 10th anniversary. So I don't think it's on there. Yeah. Um, now idiot. Cause that's a great movie. Idiot film. Jeff has a question. Is this movie known for the line badges? We don't need no stinking badges. No, that'd be Treasure Sierra Mine. Okay, that was that was a test for you. You passed. Okay, good job. Um, <laughs> this movie obviously famously referenced in Beverly Hills Cop um, when uh, the cops are having the shootout at um, uh, at the mansion, and I think the the goofy taller cop mentions mentions uh, just like uh, uh, Bush Ca- Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I think so. Could be wrong. If I am, send an email to Jeff at theotherkindradio.com and let me know. Um, I, this is popping forever, so I'm going to trust you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so that's um, 1969's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid coming in at 73. Um, now on to 72, another film from 1994, which was mentioned earlier with the uh, Oscar run for that year. A another truly great movie uh, based on a Stephen King film, I believe, uh, The Shawshank Redemption. Yes, it is based on a short story by Stephen King called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Mm. Studio balked on using that title, and they just said they even hated Shawshank Redemption. Um, it, they released it. The film was a flop initially. It's about two imprisoned men who bond over a number of years, finding solace and eventual redemption through the acts of common decency. It is directed and written, uh, I'm sorry, adapted by Frank Darabont. I I don't I don't know if you're going to find too many more films that are more beloved now. In fact, IMDb, I want to say may rank it as their number one most beloved film or one of the I, I know that there's somewhere along that way that it is very highly rated on IMDb. I know my wife, who is a big fan of Gone with the Wind and all the years that we were dating and together, that was her film. When she saw this, it was this film and only this film. So you've got beautiful, iconic performances by Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman as two men who, who find themselves in a prison together and learn that hope is a good thing. It's a beautiful film. There, I, I challenge too many people to find fault with it. Stephen King has said it's amongst his favorite adaptations. The only thing that he faults is that his story does not have the moment when Andy goes into the warden's office and plays the record of opera and everyone listens, Stephen King didn't care for that moment, but he said it was a small moment of indulgence for the director. He's willing to forgive. It's a great film. If you've not seen it, I I know I'm begging so many people to watch so many things, but it's one of those that you really do need to see because that line of hope is a good thing in the days when, you know, in, in my life, when things are a little sour, I'm like, hope is a good thing. And I find myself quoting this film just an absolute gorgeous film about the human struggle to simply find a reason to keep going. Very, very, very good summation there. Um, and I, I was unaware before this conversation about the battle with, um, 
Forrest Gump for the Oscars. And, um, yeah, if I had to put these two up against each other and I got to see one of them uh, or the other one before I would slip into a deep sleep or whatever, I would go with Shawshank every time. Um, it's also a movie that uh, if I'm tired, <laughs> I'll start wondering when moments from the Green Mile will show up. Um, yeah, it, <laughs> yes. Right. Just, same same director. Yeah. He, he, he wanted to go back to King, and he took a little uh, six-part released story and, and turned it into it. But you're absolutely right. It does feel like it belongs in the exact same world. Yeah, like the, the, like this could be happening in the same prison that all the yeah. other stuff was going on. Uh, but a great movie. Um, I, I, just as you're begging people to watch films, I keep repeating myself, this is another movie that takes you on a journey. This is one that you just... Um, as we continue to talk and we talk about being just letting yourself go as far as getting into the movie, this is another one. Just sit back and relax and watch it. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try and see, you know, uh, is he going to do this? Is he going to escape? Is this, is, is red going to die and all this other stuff? Just watch it because really good movies have the pacing and everything that let those moments where they open the gates of the plot and let all of that information come through is what makes it, you know, uh, an enjoyable experience. If if I tell you what's going to happen, then the moment, you know, late in the film where I, where where they're on the beach, um, wouldn't have a tenth of the impression it did if you just kind of were patient and waited for it to unfold. So, I I will say this that my wife loves this so much that um, probably it's been fifteen more more years ago. We were trying to find a place to go on vacation. She had a bunch of frequent flyer miles. And, and she said, what if we went to Zahuatanejo, Mexico, which is where Andy says he wants to get away to. So let's, I've actually gone and stayed in Zahuatanejo, Mexico. Let's go to prison. <laughs> let's escape and go. <laughs> but it really, it, it affected, my wife is a very sentimental, lovely person, but doesn't really get into a lot of these type of things. She knows how much I love film. She doesn't necessarily jump into it, but this film speaks to her soul so much and touched her. And I think that that's what it is. I think for so many people, we all want to look at the differences of one another. We all want to point out where you're not me. Right. But these men find out that that's kind of the point of it. Yeah. You're not me. You didn't get here the same way, but we're here together. Let's go somewhere together. And that's, it's, it's really, when you boil down the plot of any film, you can usually look at the sim simple nature of what the characters want. And that's, it's a love story between two men. And I don't mean that, and we're going to have two men jumping in bed in prison kind right, of way. Right, right. It is two men loving each other and saying, you're my brother. Come be with me. And it, it's just an absolutely beautiful, almost lyrical film. Thanks for pointing out the fact that, you know, you get to go to Zewataneo. Oh, bite me. Whenever I, I, I feel the need to run for the border, I just go to Taco Bell. <laughs> I knew where that was going. I couldn't quit laughing before you got there. I have to be I have to be honest with you. As soon as you said that, I started working on what I was going to say. And, th and then you kept talking. I'm like, dude, shut up. I've got a joke. I've got funny stuff, funny stuff. But the great comedians are always thinking one step ahead. Come on, Todd. Come on, come on, come on. Well, I just, I'm pissed off that you didn't use the rim shot after you said that. I know, I know. I'm, I wanted it to be more uh, more of a natural moment. But uh, oh, okay, okay, okay. But very well said. Um, again, another, another great movie. Another one I believe uh, should be in its spot. Uh, coming in uh, from the year. 1994 
and number 72, The Shawshank Redemption. Check at the time. You are listening to The Other Kind Radio. We are 51 minutes into our podcast. We have one more film to go. So, good gosh, we're, we are on uh, pace. Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the hosts. Uh, Todd is your other host. And we are going through the AFI's Top 100 10th Anniversary list of films. And... Um, we're going to close out this edition of the podcast by going, uh, wow, we're going to just going to go kind of a, a one-two punch, if you will. Coming out in, uh, came out in 1998, number 71 on the list, and our last film we'll uh, talk about today, uh, Saving Prior. Oh, one thing I wanted to say, um, was it always this, The Shawshank Redemption? I yeah. thought it was, okay, I thought it would, whenever it's just... Everybody I, just calls it Shawshank Redemption, but it is because it comes from... Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank uh, Redemption. Okay. All right. I didn't mean to tie us back down there. So anyway, <laughs> no disrespect <laughs> to saving saving Pyre Ryan coming out in nineteen ninety eight. Rounding out um our ten films we're going over today. And uh in at seventy one. Todd. So Saving Private Ryan, I'm sure most people listening to this know it's Steven Spielberg's telling of uh a group of men that that land on the Normandy beaches. So as a group of U.S. soldiers, they go behind enemy lines to retrieve a paratrooper whose brothers have been killed in action. It's loosely based on a true story where one mother had already lost a number of sons and they pulled out somebody else to get them out of there. It's, it is not a true story, but it, it has that loose pinnings. Um, this is probably revered amongst most people in the film industry for being one of the first and most realistic and uncompromising accounts of war from Hollywood. Hollywood has, you know, even with Platoon, has showed the gritty side, but the opening moments of this, the the, the landing on the, the beaches oh. of New York, it is so horrific. It is so realistic that I, the only way I can, I, I have to tell seeing that the way I saw this in the theater, I took my wife and since then she's sworn off to me, I'll never see another war film. Um, but when it was over, there was a man sitting beside us just sobbing. And my sweet wife leaned over and asked if he's okay. And he, he, he made mention that his brother died on the beaches of Normandy. Oh, wow. And, you know, I, I, I'm almost brought to tears thinking that man, because I, I looked at his struggle and how true it was and to see this, that he did not compromise anything when it came to what he wanted to show. He shot it in a very, uh, realistic gritty documentary style and what i mean by the documentary style if you ever hear that will be that they have multiple cameras shooting something at once so they get the footage well he had a number of cameramen and they would land the actors on the beach and he'd say follow them just and all i want you to do is grab the shots of what you think you need to see and he so that was his directing usually a director of this caliber is going to be like i want to see this he trusted these people and he let them get out there and when you watch it it has that feeling of it's not even controlled chaos. It's captured chaos. It the bullets flying everywhere. The sound design on it. You know, if I ever want to show off my sound system, my surround sound system, I put this film on because it is bullets whizzing by you. They hit and they thud, or they hit and they ricochet. It's screams. It's. I know that sounds horrible to show that off, but at the same time, it is such a virtuoso moment by a filmmaker. This is this is one of those films that. I will I will not be surprised over the years if AFI does more of this, that this film continues to climb. Now, it did lose the best picture of that year to um, Shakespeare in Love, which is a complete joke, and it goes into mm. the whole 
Harvey Weinstein used to buy off people and tell them you can't vote for that. You have to vote for me or I'll ruin you. And that is notorious now with the whole Me Too movement that's out there. Um, this film, this film is probably only dinged by one of the great no-nos of filmmaking. And and I should have mentioned the Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank has a voiceover, which is considered a no-no, but in my mm. opinion, works beautifully in Shawshank. Saving Private Ryan gets the big no-no because of what are called the bookends. And at the very first, we see um, a man going to look at a gravesite. And at the end, where it's revealed who the man is. It is, it's a rather manipulative bit that you don't need. Well, and, and you've mentioned before that Spielberg is guilty of this. He does this in a lot of his films. Uh, Ready he Player is, One, we, we did the same thing. Yeah, he, he Spielberg is notorious for being afraid to end his films. Now, when we get to an E.T., you know, there's no more perfect ending of a film. So I want to say that the, he can get it right. But there are so many instances, Ready Player One, this, Lincoln has an ending that doesn't need to be there. And if you cut off these bookends of the old man at the gravesite, it's as powerful, if not more powerful, of a film. So it, it's not perfect, but if for anything, you, you could cut it off after that first, I think it's 35 minutes is how long the, the landing on the beaches of Normandy is. So it takes up the first third of the film, approximately first four, third, whatever it would be. It, it's one of those that I can't, I don't know that I can watch it sometimes. Some of the stuff at the end is so violent and so absolutely deplorable that I even get upset and I try to watch all this. It, it It's a haunting film. It truly is a haunting film. You know, for me, um, so we're talking 98. Um, I, I, you know, I always kind of relate to when the movie comes out to what was where, where I was in my life. Cause I think, uh, I don't know if it's fortunately or unfortunately, but a lot of the time it could kind of dictate where I was, what I was kind of feeling at the time, because there have been movies that I've rewatched, um, that I thought were like, you know, the greatest. And then I've rewatched them later. I'm like, Oh man, that's, uh, that's unfortunate. Um, but Saber Prime and Ryan, for me, I don't think really ever hit all of the all of the notes. Um, a great film, great story, very touching. Um, yes, uh, to think of the the men, uh, young men that were storming the beach and and gave their lives and everything. Um, Tom Hanks is fantastic in it. Matt Damon uh, kind of got a, uh, his beginning um, uh, in film, I think, around that time because he had a small part in it. A lot, even um, the actor from Firefly, um, who's gone on to do a bunch of stuff, he's in that film. So it's a lot is of. He really? Yes, he is. He's one of the guy. He's one of the guys. Because um, I just saw a uh, something on Reddit where they were they put uh, other. It was like a meme or something, but it was him finding out bad news and he was crying. And yeah, it's him. It's a really young. Can, can we find out what that actor's name is? Nathan like, Gillian or something like that. Uh, well, let's look up Firefly real quick. Um, yeah, Nate, yeah, Nathan Fillion. Uh, Fillion. 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 Well, I can't read. Here we go. Jeff's Jeff's uh, had another sip of beer. Uh, last name spelled um, F-I-L-L-I-O-N. Yeah, so it might be Fillion. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and I agree with everything you're saying um, about that film. And, and I do think it, it belongs in place. But I do want to take up the last few moments as we discuss this since we're going to close this episode out mm-hmm. with something I noticed and you can help me make sure that this is correct but Tom Hanks who's in Saving Private Ryan has now been in three of the top 70 films 
in the AFI Top 100, and we haven't gotten to the half yet. He was uh, a voice in Toy Story. We talked about uh, Forrest Gump and now Saving Ryan. Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, that's... And so... Is there anybody else that's been been in the list that number of time? Times? No, and I was looking through the list I have that talks about the most represented actors. Uh-huh. And I don't immediately see that they added Tom Hanks in here. Huh. Well, but this this may also be reflecting on the original list. So. Right, right. And I'm looking ahead and seeing if there's anything, and not to not to take up the the time of the kind listener, but I do think it's interesting that, that if we have our facts correct, uh, and feel free to correct us if we're not. Um, you can find us on Twitter at at tok radio tok radio at tok radio on Twitter. That the that that actor has been involved with those three. Pra- now I'm sure we have directors that have and cinematographers that have and everything else, but um, I'm you know I'm not uh, not seeing that repeated anywhere on, else on that list. So that that's kind of amazing to know that he's uh, represented quite a bit in the top. And because you bring up cinematographers, I have to say one thing about Saving Private Ryan. That is shot by Giannis Kaminsky, who has been Spielberg's cinematographer since Schindler's List. He uses a what uh, I'm I actually may be saying this wrong, but I think it's called a varied frame rate on the stuff on Normandy so it has this film uh, it almost looks like those old handheld film got the uh, grittiness to it yeah the, well the newsreels that didn't have a locked in frame rate oh and so it'll jitter and that alone it evokes so many things that we saw and what I actually think is genius about that is that when we would see those in, in the newsreels back in the 40s they would clean it up the boys were always victorious they may look a little worn out and they look, may look a little dirty but they were victorious here he's going to use that technique and show us that it was horrible. Oh, wow. And it, it's just, it's a, there's so many things in there that they're just doing that you, you can, you can have a film class on that scene alone. Right. That's wow. it. I'm done. <laughs> I've said enough about film for the night. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I also want to make mention Todd just participated in a uh, podcast. That is going to be um, available in a couple of months. Todd, you want to tell them where they can hear that podcast? Yeah, it's another minute, member of the Movie by Minute family called Everlasting Minute. They cover Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the 19, oh, good Lord, I want to say it's 71 film uh, with Gene Wilder. And they, they had me on to host a total of nine minutes. And a large part of that was the song Pure Imagination, which is one of my favorite songs ever. They're a great podcast, a lot of fun. If you've never experienced the Movies by Minute family, they're a great one to jump into. You can even let your kids listen because unlike what Jeff and I do, there's no cussing. (laughs) All right, Todd. Thanks again. Thank you, the kind listener. That was our 10 movies. We're going to go through another 10 or so coming in a week week or so. We'll drop another episode. Thanks again. Time's up. We are... The Other Kind Radio. Thanks again for listening.